Hello church, it's me Devana again, only this time I'm reaching you from my office. I'm recording this video on Thursday as part of our missions partners updates that we're doing in the season of Lent. Um, this week we are going to be highlighting the Outreach Foundation. This is a global missions partner that we partner with through our denomination. Um, as you know, we've been waiting to find a tangible way we can do a financial contribution to help support the relief effort because of the war in Ukraine. And the Outreach Foundation is an excellent option for that because it is supporting specific congregations both in Ukraine and in Eastern Europe surrounding them. And all of the funds that we collect here through our special offering, which is available on the website and in person today and in Easter, um, you'll learn more about that later. Um, those funds are going directly to support the relief efforts of specific congregations. So how can we pray? First, we'd like to pray for City Church Lithuania, where some of these funds are going. They are receiving refugees from the Ukraine. Um, their members are opening up their homes to make space for displaced people, women and children from Ukraine. And we are grateful for their offerings of food and shelter at this time, and we want to support them in those relief efforts. We also want to pray specifically for Father Ole from the Ukrainian Catholic Church of Ukraine. He is helping facilitate displaced people in Ukraine, either to find housing around Lviv or to leave the country. And their church is even offering travel stipends for people who need to depart. Um, so our financial contributions are going to support those efforts specifically. And if you have any other questions about that, then you can reach out to me. I'll be answering emails that are ukraine at wcpc.church. Um, now let's turn towards our scripture reading for today, which comes from Luke 19 verses 24, 28 through 44. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you. And as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, Jesus replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Devana. 
Well, good morning. I want to join uh, Devana and Ryan in saying welcome to you. I'm Bart Garrett, one of the pastors here. And uh, we are into Holy Week, which means we are uh, taking a break from this series, if you've been with us, in the book of Acts entitled uh, The Great Revolution of Prayer. And we're actually backing up to Luke's work, Luke's gospel, where we're going to spend a week together uh, looking at the question, who is Jesus. And so today we're looking at Jesus as humble king. Thursday night, which you'll hear more about, we'll look at uh, Jesus as beloved friend. Friday, Jesus as suffering servant. And then Sunday, Jesus as resurrected God. And uh, they left a palm branch up here for me as well. So if you want a second use for your palm branch, if this sermon gets boring, you can just start waving it. But if you fall asleep, I'm going to wave a palm branch back at you. So it's was equal opportunity here this morning. Um, but, you know, I like this time of year to ask the kids when they're in our service what it is I have around my wrist. So I'm going to ask you big kids, since they're in the children's ministry today, what is this that I have on my wrist? Yes, good answer, a watch. You thought maybe the Sunday school answer, Jesus. But no, it's actually a wrist watch. And I say that because why do we call it a watch? We call it a watch because we watch time with it. In fact, there are two Greek words in Scripture that talk about time. One of them is chronos and one of them is kairos. And chronos time is the 24-7, 365 time that you keep on your watch. But kairos time is the way the Greeks would describe a pregnant moment. It's the right moment. So you may be thinking to yourself, you know, when is the right time to change jobs or make the move or ask him out or ask her out? Well, Kairos is that pregnant moment in our lives, and I think it often connects to Holy Week. It often connects to the church calendar where we move through Advent and then uh, into the Lenten season. And now it's the moment where I would suggest, here's the invitation to you, that you would make time for time this week, that you would make time for time, for Kairos time. I don't know what that might look like for you. Certainly an invitation to our services here. If you need to sort of step back into this story, I'd highly recommend Dallas Jenkins, The Chosen. But you would carve out some space this week to make time for time. Now, in this rendition, uh, Luke's story of this Palm Sunday moment, uh, there is a dizzying display of the crowds. Did did you catch it? Um, Circa 2019, the year before COVID, which is so somehow like three years and 30 years ago, it's kind of hard that we have this sense of time with COVID, but 2019, we're visiting my family in North Carolina, my wife's family, and we're there over 4th of July, and they're in a small town in the mountains of North Carolina, so we go to a 4th of July parade, and I asked my youngest daughter for permission to share this story. She was about 12 years old at the time, and she grew up on the border of Berkeley and Oakland. It's all she's ever known, and so we're walking out into this parade, and she says, Dad, is this a protest? Such a great question. And that's kind of what's happening in this story. As Jesus is moving into Jerusalem, you might ask the question, is this a parade or is this a protest? And the answer is yes. 
this is the Passover festival. It's the Freedom Festival. The Jews have been under the thumb of Roman rule, and they are looking back to celebrate this great liberation all the way back when the people of God were rescued from Egypt. And this crowd is full of rebel rousers. It's full of radical revolutionaries. And they see Jesus, who is kind of of this ilk. He's been known as a prophet, a priest, a king, and more. In fact, when the religious leaders were questioning his bona fides and were talking about Abraham and whether or not Jesus connected to him, Jesus said to him, but, but said to them, before Abraham was, I am. And it was actually a statement of divinity. And how do we know this? Because the religious leaders picked up stones to stone him as a blasphemer. So that's why there's this dizzying display of this crowd, because on the one hand, they're all saying, Hosanna, the king has come. Hosanna, the shortest prayer in scripture. Hosanna, save us, rescue us. But five days later, that same crowd will be saying, crucify him, crucify him. This is a crowd full of people who are anxious and afraid and angry and bitter and some of them are full of joy and wonder and anticipation and many of them have shattered dreams and dashed hopes and there's all sorts of disillusionment and bewilderment and I might say it like this, this crowd is confused. So many faces in that crowd that day. It's almost as if God wants every single person who has ever lived to find themselves in that crowd and to ask the question, how am I showing up? So I'll ask you the question this morning. How are you showing up today? For some of us online or in this room, this is it's a quaint little story and maybe we want to draw some inspiration from it, but if we're honest with ourselves or with our friends, maybe it's a little bit of a relic to a bygone era. Some of you maybe came with a friend or a neighbor or a coworker, and you're looking at that friend and maybe you lost a bet to them or maybe you're just trying to assuage them so that you, they won't invite you to church anymore. And you're looking at this story and you find it a little bit confusing because maybe you look at your Christian friend and you say, well, they're sort of normal-ish, but do they really believe this stuff? Maybe you're unconvinced. Maybe you're skeptical. Maybe... There's a flame of early faith that has just sort of flickered out in your life over time. And maybe this is a holy week where you're finding yourself in one last ditch effort to fan that flame. Or maybe coming out of COVID, you are listless and languishing. A lot of us can feel that. Life feels like it's flatlined and maybe hope is just too much heavy lifting for you right now. And for many of you, there's a full devotion, a, a whole commitment to this story. And wherever you are, I want to invite you again, take the journey of the Passion Week, of the Holy Week. This week, make some time for time to help sort all of this out. This morning, in our next few minutes, here's the big idea, and I'm just taking it from Jesus' words in verse 42 as he looked over Jerusalem. This is what he said. If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. And I think this beckons a couple questions for us this morning. The first one is simply, what is peace? And the second one is, uh, what or who will bring us peace? What is peace? And secondly, what will bring you peace? So when I ask that question, what is peace? You may go in a couple different directions. You may think about uh, inner peace, 
Or you may think about peace on earth. There's a sense in which uh, peace is so innocuous or so unattainable that we just sort of generalize it, right? Well, I've got this inner poise, this inner peace. Or yes, it's peace on earth. I love the bumper sticker that many of you will remember of that green swirl on the back of the car and it says visualize world peace. You've seen that? Yeah. It's because we don't know what to do with peace, right? What is it? Well, that word in Scripture actually comes from the Hebrew root shalom. And I love this definition. It's the weaving or the webbing together of God, creation, and humanity in equity, fulfillment, and delight. God's shalom, God's peace, is the weaving or webbing together of God, humanity, and creation in equity, fulfillment, and delight. If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. If you've ever been watching a movie and you know that moment in the movie, and it happens in a lot of movies, where it's a Kairos moment. It's, it's a pregnant moment of flashback. It's kind of what I see when I look at this cinemat- cinemagraphically speaking. That's not even a word. But when I'm imagining Jesus in this moment, it's that profound flashback where the character is usually looking down in the dirt or looking out on the horizon or sort of panning the cityscape or the naturescape. And it's a pan across time before the moment happened, before what went wrong went wrong. It's it's a flashback. And I can imagine that flashback in this moment. God, humanity, and creation. I, I love hummingbirds. We have a hummingbird feeder, and when you see them out there, you, you want to just like hold one of those hummingbirds, right? They're just these, these beautiful aspects of God's ingenuity and innovation, his creativity, the peace of God, equity, no classes, fulfillment, no emptiness, delight, no drudgery. Under God, Adam and Eve, as the story unfolds in that garden, they were naked, one before the other, and they experienced no shame. Why why would Moses write it that way? Because Moses knows our deepest longing is to be both fully loved and fully known. From the split end on our head to the little nail on our pinky toe. To be fully known all the way down and fully loved. If you, Adam and Eve, had only known on that day what would bring you peace, But you know the rest of the story. The tempter came to them and said, hey, you know what? Being with God is not enough. You can be like God. Take the fruit. You'll have exhaustive knowledge. You'll know everything about good and evil. And so what did Adam and Eve do? They lived as if they were gods. And what happened? All hell broke loose. They realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together out of shame. It was that moment where our deepest longing actually becomes our greatest fear that we would be known all the way down to our toes and not fully loved. They exchanged, I like to say, intimacy with God and with one another for their freedom. And they've been looking for both intimacy and freedom ever since. And so have we. That's why in our worst pursuits, money, sex, 
and power become classism and sexism and racism. It's why statism and unchastened nationalism becomes this totalitarian regime that binds abuses of money, sex, and power together. Think about what happens with this, as it's been called, butcher of buka. What is peace? It's the webbing together of creation, God, uh, in humanity, and equity, fulfillment, and delight. So who will bring this peace to us? Take it off the global stage for just a second and put it back in your life. Maybe for you it's to meet the love of your life or to get the kid out of diapers or to get your kid to and through college or to know you have enough money to retire or to get past a divorce or through a bout of cancer or over this stress at work. And all of those things are things that we care a lot about, the situations and the circumstances of life. But this story is more about the existential metaphysical realities because if unpeace is so severe, we have to plumb to the depths and here it is, it's crazy. I'll just go ahead and tell you. Who or what will bring peace to you? God riding into your life as a humble king. I'm gonna say that again because it's crazy. Who or what in life will bring ultimate peace to you? It's God riding into your life as a humble king. The big idea again, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, what might bring you peace, it's this, God riding into your life as a humble king. Yes, it's crazy, I know. But you've tried all sorts of tips and techniques, haven't you? As I like to say, the life hacks and the level ups, we we do all sorts of things with all the apps we have or the cues we have on Netflix or the extra drinks we need to take or whatever it might be. But what will bring you ultimate peace? It's God riding into your life as a humble king. And I want to conclude by just unpacking that with two expressions here. And I want you to look at them as you're one of those faces in the crowd, I want you to look at the donkey that Jesus rode, and I want you to look at the tears that Jesus shed. We see the donkey firstly in verse 35, and notice what Jesus says. He says to two of his disciples, hey, go get this donkey. And I want to just point out, and this is another sermon, that the disciples always did things in community. The only time a disciple ever did a thing by himself, you know who it was? Judas. And he betrayed Jesus. So that's another sermon. But he sends two people. It only takes one. But Jesus sends two people to go get this donkey. And you think about it in our vernacular. You know, some of us are like one car, two car, or three car families. And today you can borrow a car. You can rent a car. You can lease a car. But a lot of people didn't have donkeys. And if you had a donkey, you probably only had one donkey. You were a one donkey family. And so they go to this one donkey family and they take the donkey and then Jesus gives them a great answer for what to say if they say, what are you doing? Why are you taking my donkey? It's okay, God needs it. God is repossessing your donkey. And they say, well, what in God's name is is happening here? So then we learn five times that they're supposed to untie this donkey. So let me just tell you something. The word economy on a papyrus scroll where you're using an ink quill 
It's exquisite. It's crucial to get the words right. A colt is tied up. Untie it. Hard stop. Why did Luke mention five times they needed to untie this donkey? Well, it was an echo of Genesis chapter 49 when Jacob is blessing his sons. In in verse 11, in his blessing, he says, A ruler will come who would tie a colt to a vine, which is another way of saying uh, he will untie it and bring it back to its rightful owner. This is a couple thousand years in the making here, and there are royal reverberations in this scene. God is riding into life as a humble king, but he's unlike any king we would ever think we wanted. So think about it this way. Uh, If I were to say to you, hey, uh, what am I talking about? Stockings filled with presents. You would say, Christmas or Santa, right. If I were to say multicolored eggs hidden in a backyard, you would say, yes. If I were to say uh, kids dressing up and knocking on doors for candy, you would say, okay, so if I were to say knocking on doors, asking for Easter eggs while carrying stockings, you would say, that's confusing, right? Well, that's what Jesus is doing in this story. He's crazily mixing traditions and holidays, and it's precisely the two that I want to just dial into in our last couple moments here, Hanukkah and Passover, that should get our attention. Because in Hanukkah, the true king of Israel is coronated, and in the Passover, a lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. And Jesus, in riding a donkey into Jerusalem, is is convening these two holidays into one. In fact, his entry into Jerusalem was the same entry that Judas Maccabeus took when he defeated the pagans and cleansed the temple back in 164 BC, 170 years before Jesus is here. His followers, what are they doing? They're waving palm branches. What do the people of God do? They put these indelible palm frond imprints on their coinage. This is what it means that Judas Maccabeus is victorious in this rebellion. Save one thing. Jesus rode not a kingly steed like Judas Maccabeus rode into Jerusalem, but instead he rode a lowly donkey. I have a picture from Jadot, this Italian fresco from 1305. Notice what Jadot would want us to notice today. The centerpiece is actually not Jesus in this painting. It's the donkey right in the middle of the painting. Why? Because in analogous stories, the person who enters the city does so to claim kingship on a royal steed ready to fight for primacy. But get this, maybe you've never heard it this way before, a donkey is just not the meek humility of Jesus. Instead, it proclaims, my victory has already been won. There is nothing that can happen that will keep me from taking my rightful place as king of the cosmos, and I'll do it by becoming the savior of the world. In other words, the victory of Jerusalem, it's already been leveled. Jesus can ride in on a donkey. That's how confident he is in what's about to happen. He doesn't need a steed. There is no way to fight back. Well, there is a way, and that's the second holiday 
that Jesus is referring to, the Passover. That somehow this king of the cosmos would gain his rightful place on the throne by becoming the Passover lamb. What is happening in this moment? Remember this Passover is the great spring festival at the heart of Jewish life. It's the liberation from slavery via the sacrifice of this lamb, sprinkling of blood on the doorpost. Later, this would be the, the ritualized religion of the temple. All the songs of Israel were sung about the temple. All the poems of Israel were written about the temple. All the campfire conversations in Israel were had around the temple. But Jesus is saying, I will be your king, your high priest, by also becoming your sacrificial lamb. Leslie Newbegin wrote it this way in The Light Has Come, that the crucifixion of a man should be the ultimate manifestation of the glory of God is as scandalous to Jewish religious messianism as it is absurd to Greek philosophy. But it is true, for the glory of God is the outpouring of love which is supremely revealed in the obedience of Jesus to death and in the action of the Father who gives his only Son for the life of the world. So that's what's happening with these la- the last thing I want you to notice. The tears that Jesus shed. Jesus shed tears for Jerusalem. And as I pray for us, I want you to think about it this way. And there's a picture I want to end with on the screen behind me. Of coming up over the Mount of Olives, overlooking the city of Jerusalem. This is, this is right at sunset. This is a 17-mile journey. Would have taken 8 to 10 hours for Jesus to make it. He would have been at the lowest place on earth in Jericho, barren wasteland. He'd get to the Mount of Olives at springtime, and everything would be lush and beautiful. And before him would be the glistening, holy city. And what does he do? He weeps over it. Why does he weep over it? Again, as he says in verse 42, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. See, that the people of God knew they needed saving. They knew they needed rescuing. They knew they needed to be sutured back into the peace of God. But Jesus, with the foresight of his tears, knew that that would come with political machinations and religious maneuverings that there would be another revolt and it wouldn't make it and the temple would be decimated and all the political aspirations and all the religious maneuverings of the people would fall apart the tragedy that jesus is crying about is that if they only knew the way jesus would come riding into their life on a cult bringing peace they would be saved. So what about you? What about you this week? What would it look like for you to consider Jesus, the humble king, proclaiming of your life, I can ride a donkey into your life because the victory has already been won. Well, I think if you're like me, it would probably involve giving over some of your political machinations and your religious maneuverings and coming back to God through this work of Jesus, which we're going to do right now at this table, and receiving again a grace that only God can give, a hope that only God can give, a love that is actually God's way of of fully knowing us, 
yet fully receiving us. Would you invite this Jesus back into your life or into your life this Holy Week? Let me pray for us. God, sometimes we even make church about the tips and techniques, uh, the seven habits or the three principles or the five loves or or whatever it may be. Um, But the reason we need Holy Week is because we need you. Uh, Jesus, uh, we need you to save us from ourselves We need you to uh, redeem us through your work on the cross, through the powerful hope of your resurrection. So God, would we make time for time this week? Uh, We're inviting you to uh, unsettle us, to dishevel us, that you might uh, bring us back to um, what the author of Revelation called uh, our first love, that we would know again what it would be like in the garden with the hummingbirds flitting about with perfect intimacy and ultimate freedom found in our relationship to you. Lord Jesus, come quickly, we pray. Amen.